It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, November 9th, 2021. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Very glad to have you along every weekday. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then if you want some more, which I'm sure you do, on the weekends, we have Bonus Benson on the podcast. Podcasts available every day for free. GuyBensonShow.com. All the ways to listen live and, of course, to get that podcast. Other options there, FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We recommend GuyBensonShow.com. On today's program, here's the lineup. Corey DeAngelis. Major school choice advocate will be here. Some big movement on the education issue just in the last few weeks and some very interesting comments from Randy Weingarten, one of the top union bosses. We will get Corey's reaction to that. Jessica Tarloff joining us in the next hour, our friend from the other side of the ideological spectrum. We'll get an update from her on her lessons out of the, I would say, troubling elections for her party last week. President Biden's approval rating and bad polls, et cetera, plus an update on her pregnancy. She's getting close, if I recall correctly. Coming up in the latter part of the next hour, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Republican of South Carolina. She's back here on the show. She voted against the infrastructure bill on Friday night. We'll get her to weigh in on that and what comes next in the House. And also Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is here. He's got some lessons from 2018, 2020, and is looking toward the future as well. I want to talk to him about the state of play in the crucial state of Georgia, which will be another battleground yet again in the 22 midterm cycle. As we get going, Fox News alert. Let's bring you stats on COVID. The case count, 46.5 million and counting some of the states that were absolutely hammered in the Delta wave months ago and over the summer. They are now way down in terms of cases and hospitalizations and deaths. I saw one hospital in Florida was celebrating no COVID patients for the first time since the early days of 2020. So they have moved on from their seasonal wave. And now that wave is hitting a few other places. Colorado in particular is struggling at the moment. But overall, New cases are down across the country, which is good news, as are hospitalizations and deaths. A lot of that is because of the vaccines and natural immunity. The death toll in this country from COVID or with COVID over the last 19 or 20 months, now 755,273. Well, just a moment ago, I mentioned the state of Florida. The governor of that state, of course, is Republican Ron DeSantis who won in 2018 in a tough year for Republicans just by a hair, right? Roughly a point. It was a squeaker in the state of Florida. The polls show that he was going to lose, but he didn't. He barely got over the hump, and he has become a very consequential governor, not just in that state, in the history of Florida, but in the current political landscape across the country. Democrats and the media 
who work together a lot of the time, have thrown everything they possibly can at Ron DeSantis. At the moment, he remains relatively popular in the state, even though he is down from previous sky-high numbers. There was some polling data that came out just a few weeks ago that suggests he is a favorite for re-election. They put some hypothetical matchups into the field, some pollsters against the top Democrats who are talking about running, including Nikki Freed, who's the only statewide Democrat elected in Florida, Charlie Crist, who used to be governor. He's been a member of basically every party, Republican, then he was an independent, then he was a Democrat, whatever his political needs require, uh, he shifts. So he's now a Democrat. He's a member of the House of Representatives, and now he wants his old job back, this time as a Democrat, because last time he was governor, he was a Republican governor. So there was a survey that came out in mid-October that had DeSantis ahead of both of those potential challengers by anywhere between four and ten points. I think it's interesting that as he was gearing up, DeSantis was for re-election with the midterm election now less than one year away. The Democratic Governors Association, so the DGA, it was reported in Politico that they have been spreading the word, they have made the decision that they have no plans at this time to allocate significant financial resources to the Florida race, which is obviously not great news for the Democrats down there who loathe DeSantis with a fiery passion along with a lot of the media. And I think a lot of the media has been rooting for Democrats to ding up DeSantis and sully his image and bring him down a few pegs, often with the help of journalists, much of the time misleading, mendacious, dishonest. We've spent a lot of time on this program fact-checking some of those partial truths, half-truths, untruths, and outright aggressive lies. Right? It bothers me when you see this unholy alliance of the Democratic Party and the news media doing their best to take down someone that they view as a threat who is an ideological opponent of theirs. And that has been the case. That has been a battle being waged in Florida against DeSantis now for years, especially, though, during the pandemic. And DeSantis has weathered the storm. I don't agree with everything that he does or says. There are some things that I have objected to here on the air and on Twitter and in writing and that sort of thing. He's not flawless. He's a little bit more red meat than I would care for from time to time. But I think in the main, broadly speaking, he has been a good governor who has made a lot of good decisions. And a lot of his critics have been proven wrong repeatedly, but they will never admit it. And they just move from one critique to the next, never conceding the fact that he was right and they were wrong in previous lines of attack against him. So with that as the context... And with 2024, yes, as a backdrop, DeSantis has officially kicked off his reelection campaign down in Florida. Is he as strong right now as he has been previously in his uh, governorship? No, based on the polling. Is he still a favorite to win? I would say yes. In fact, given the direction of the Florida electorate, Heading into next year, again, a year out, I would put the over-under for his victory margin, I think he's definitely the favorite, at four, maybe five points, assuming it would be a more Republican electorate 
in the off year in this type of midterm cycle, which tends to favor the out party, in this case, the Republicans. There was a huge turnout in 2020, and Trump carried that state by, what, three points. Remember, in 2016, Marco Rubio, the senator who's up again this year, or this cycle, I should say, next year, he won by roughly eight points, while President Trump carried that state in 2016 by a much smaller margin and then built that margin up to three points, which for Florida is kind of like a blowout. Winning statewide in Florida by three points is a pretty decisive victory, given how tight that state has been. But I think based on Rubio's result in 2016, based on where DeSantis stands in popularity and head to head and these Democrats running against him, I think DeSantis might be looking to try to run up the score a bit for a few reasons, including a demonstration of strength ahead of 2024 if he decides to run for president. Now, could he lose in Florida? Absolutely. That is a swing state. Barack Obama won it twice. There are scenarios under which things could go south. Right. So I think counting chickens for the Republican Party, whether it's in an individual race like this one or broadly speaking, when you look at the House or the Senate races, as we've done in recent days and will continue to do, I think counting chickens is always a mistake. Things can fall apart. However, from where I sit, and obviously from where the DGA currently sits, DeSantis is viewed as a pretty strong favorite to win, and he has to win re-election in Florida if he has ambitions for 2024. I also think it's important for him to win in Florida, given the decisions that he's made on schools and masking, keeping schools open back in 2020, for example, all the slings and arrows and the dishonesty, if he can emerge from that and win again, I think that sends an important statement, not just for Florida, but across the country about how the media and the Democratic alliance can be defeated. I think there's actually a lot riding on this reelection bid for Ron DeSantis in the state of Florida. Now, of course, some in the press are already asking, I think reasonably, about his potential ambitions beyond this cycle into the next cycle and higher office. So in an interview with a local TV station earlier this week, DeSantis was asked about this. I want you to listen to the way that he answers the question in cut 13. You commit to serving four years. You're laughing. Somebody asks you this question every time. Uh, So I'm running for governor. I'm not running for any other office. God willing, you know, they'll they'll have me here for, you know, five more years from, from today would be my hope. Why did you laugh at that? Because literally I get asked that everywhere I go. And it's just interesting because I have not done one thing. Like, have you ever seen me go to Iowa or any of these places? Like, literally, I've done nothing. And people kind of impose speculation on me. So it's just interesting thing to do because it'd be one thing if I was out there trying to make moves. But I think what's happened is, um, you know, particularly Republican voters, you know, they want to see somebody that will get things done and lead and, and really be out. And I think that they look to me for whatever reason for that. So he's running for governor, he says. That is the only office that he's running for. And I think it was interesting for him to say, I haven't made any of the moves that people who plan on running for president generally do. Right? Lincoln Day dinners in Iowa or in New Hampshire or South Carolina, those aren't the things that DeSantis has been up to. And I think that's true. Now, that could also be because DeSantis recognizes that his best ticket to having an opportunity to run for president and be successful is to run Florida well, to build up an approval rating in Florida, to get the job done, to implement a bunch of conservative policies and changes 
things that the party will like, things that may sell well also with a broader electorate, and to get reelected, perhaps with some oomph in the state of Florida in 2022. And then he can start plotting the next move, should there be a next move. I happen to believe, and I think I'm not alone, that Ron DeSantis, if Donald Trump doesn't run next time, I think Ron DeSantis would run or at least would very seriously consider it, and I think would be an extremely serious contender on the Republican side. Why? Because he has almost total credibility among the Trump MAGA base. That's sort of the wing of the party that DeSantis comes from in a lot of ways. That's how he positioned himself to get the nomination back in 2018 down in Florida. But he is also governed, I think, well, For the most part, he's been smart. I think his arguments are good. He marshals facts. He's well-read. He defends himself quite well. He pushes back on the media effectively. We've talked about that here quite a lot. And he appeals to less Trump-enamored, right-leaning people, and even independents as well, like myself. And I think when you have someone who can turn out the Trump base and have credibility there but also expand the appeal and expand a potential voting base— Beyond just the base, that I believe nationally and in purple areas, that is what is needed to win. And we saw some of that, for example, in Virginia last week with a Glenn Youngkin type character. He's the type of person who can win in a deeper blue state. Virginia is, you know, Biden plus 10. Florida is Trump plus three. So those are very different states. DeSantis might be closer to where The party needs to be writ large than Yunkin for a national audience, which is why there are so many eyeballs on him and why so many knives have been out for him. So this is the way DeSantis is positioning himself at the onset of his reelect effort. It is a campaign that we are going to cover closely for all the reasons that I've explained. I think it is important. I think it is a very big race. And even if DeSantis is clearly a favorite, Nothing should be taken for granted, and there are broader implications at stake, which is why we will be keenly following it every step of the way. Now, I want to expand on something involving Trump and Virginia and some of the dynamics that I was just describing. Trump gave a speech last night that I think is partially true, but doesn't show the full picture. I'll explain what I mean by that, looking ahead to 2022 and beyond as soon as we come back. Just getting started here on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. I'm Guy Benson. We're back on The Guy Benson Show. One more note. On this, because we started with Ron DeSantis, but let's focus a bit on what just happened last week in Virginia. I see that Maggie Haberman at The New York Times tweeted this report from a speech President Trump gave at the NRCC dinner down in Florida last night. This is the Republican campaign arm for the House, trying to win back the House, which I think they've got a very good shot of doing next year. He told the crowd that Glenn Youngkin would have lost in Virginia without his support and that MAGA support is the only way to win. So I responded to this tweet with my own analysis, which is 
Yes, and. I think it is quixotic and silly and wish-casting for some anti-Trump Republicans, for example, to say, well, look, Glenn Youngkin did what he did, and the party has now been shown that you cannot really have Trump involved at all. Everything can just move on from Trump, and we can go back to the way things were. I think that's naive. Donald Trump commands a huge amount of support and loyalty among quite a lot of people in this country, including tens of millions of voters who constitute the overwhelming majority of the deep red base of the Republican Party. To just cut ties with Trump or sort of pretend like he's going away or not going to be influential, I think, is crazy. Glenn Youngkin put up huge numbers among precisely those voters in rural Virginia, southwestern Virginia. That really helped him pad the lead that he was going to need to overcome his shortcomings, Glenn Youngkin, in Northern Virginia, any Republican in Northern Virginia these days. So, of course, you need MAGA support. If the base stays home, Republicans lose. That's reality. However, if you're not in Alabama or in a deep red place, especially if you're in a purple area or a slightly blue-tinted district or state or what have you, what a candidate needs to do on the Republican side is to get that MAGA support and then also attract others, win over independents, perhaps some disaffected Democrats, moderate Republicans, moderates in general. To win nationally, I think especially to win, as I said, in purple, maybe purple-blue areas, that's the combination that is necessary. It is what Glenn Youngkin did. So it's not either or, it's both. It's and. That's the ticket forward for the Republican Party. And I think nationally, that's what Republican voters need to be thinking about as the 2024 cycle, I know we're getting way ahead of ourselves, starts to come closer and closer from over the horizon. That could be the sweet spot. And some little proofs of concept along the way, I think, could go a long way to vindicating my analysis on this. It's not either or, it's and. The Guy Benson Show continues. Corey DeAngelis on school choice, education, the unions, Randy Weingarten getting under her skin. That's all coming up next on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. It's Tuesday. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is always free. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show, or me personally at Guy P. Benson. Joining us now is Corey DeAngelis, Director of School Choice for the Reason Foundation at Reason.org. Corey, great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. 
I want to start with your overall big picture reaction to what happened one week ago in Virginia in particular, although if there are lessons from New Jersey to be derived as well on the schools and education front, by all means, you can pepper that in there as well. But Virginia was ground zero in the education wars with an actual election and results that we can see, tangible results to break down and analyze. You worked very hard trying to influence that race, trying to hold the Democrats accountable, the teachers union accountable. You had one of the top teachers union officials in the country, Randy Weingarten, on the campaign trail last Monday for Terry McAuliffe. Didn't work out well for either of them. The Republicans swept those statewide races and took back the House of Delegates. What have you learned from those results based on your own activism, your own agenda that I think a lot of our listeners share? And what are the lessons from Virginia and possibly New Jersey that you think Republicans nationally ought to learn ahead of next year? Yeah, the way I would put it is that we're witnessing a new special interest group that has emerged, which is parents that are that just want more of a say in their kids' education. And for a long time, when it came to K-12 education, the only main special interest group that existed was the powerful teachers unions who have historically disproportionately donated to uh, Democratic political candidates. If you look at the Open Secrets website, for example, I was just looking at this earlier, Every single election cycle over the past three decades, over 97 percent of the federal campaign contributions from Randy Weingarten's uh, organization, the American Federation of Teachers, went to Democrat candidates as opposed to Republican candidates, over 97 percent of the contributions. And so the, the, the Democrats are currently finding themselves in a catch-22 situation of sorts in that because they've relied so much on major contributions from, from the teachers unions, they, uh, if they take a side on parental rights and, and parental empowerment and educational freedom, they're essentially in a lose-lose situation. And what they've done for a while, and, and you know, on the one hand, if they come out for parental rights, they'll catch flack from the teachers unions. If they come out against parental rights, like we saw with Terry McAuliffe, by saying, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach and tripling down on that and having Randy Weingarten stump for him the night before the election, well, then the parents, this new special interest group, came out against Terry McAuliffe, and I think that's what Democrats are uh, have to be fearful of going forward. And Republicans, if they're smart, they'll just get the Democrat to take a stance on parental rights one way or the other because Republicans are in a win-win scenario, whereas the Democrats are in a lose-lose scenario. So this could be very politically advantageous and a, a roadmap for success for Republicans going forward. But it doesn't always have to be like this for Democrats. They can, they can, they're, they're going to have to take a side, and I would argue that parents are the better side to take going forward, because parents are going to fight for the right to educate their kids as they see fit, harder than anybody else is going to fight against them to take that right away from from them. And so, so it's it's politically advantageous for both parties at this point to take the side of parents as opposed to unions. Now, Corey, you've mentioned a few times in that answer the term or the phrase parental rights or parents' rights. When that exact phrase has appeared in mainstream media publications in the last week or two describing the fight in Virginia and elsewhere, they use sort of scare quotes around parents' rights. And it has been explicitly argued by a lot of people in the media and Democrats, you know, one in the same in many cases, 
that that's actually a code word or a coded term, a dog whistle for racism and white identity politics. I think that's absolute poisonous hogwash. I think it's garbage. But this is the operate. This is the space rather in which you operate. What's your reaction when you hear the media sort of dismiss the idea of parents' rights as sort of a trumped up, made up culture war with a racial component where they try to make it somehow racist to talk about it? I mean, this reminds me of that tweet from a long time ago where the guy said, I'm not owned, I'm not owned. I mean, it's essentially what the mainstream media is trying to do at this point. I could just picture them kind of rocking back and forth with their eyes closed and their their, their hands over their ears, pretty much trying to pretend like they didn't just experience a massive defeat. And instead of looking inwards, at what they and, and and trying to evaluate and assess what they did wrong, they're trying to go with the easier short-term solution, which isn't going to work out all that well for them. Which is to essentially label their political opponents and a massive amount of voters as, well, we saw before the the, the deplorables comment didn't really work out for Hillary Clinton very well, and we're seeing right. this kind of play out with, you know, just calling this huge swath of voters racist or white supremacist for wanting more of a say in their kids' education. Senator uh, Rick Scott just yesterday on CNN called out this gaslighting with with their anchor and pretty much pointed out that he he hopes that Democrats run with this and and the mainstream media tries to continue to just gaslight parents and pretend that the, the, yeah, the we've actually are dumb and yeah go ahead we've actually got that soundbite and we're going to play that probably later in the show today because I saw the same clip that you did Corey but the other thing and just one more point on the racial angle that they're taking because they take a racial angle on virtually everything, and then also insist that that's not happening in schools, right? If it is happening in schools, it's good, but it's not really happening, and it's a lie, right? It's an incoherent message that we're hearing from the left. But you know firsthand, based on your endless and tireless work on the school choice front and the parental rights front, some of the people who are most invested on those issues are not white people. They're people of color. That's the other thing that I think has to be so insulting, to parents of color to hear then, you know, these these elites tell them that they are either confused or being duped or are in some cases they're saying, you know, the mouthpieces for white supremacy. I cannot imagine that is a winning strategy on the left, but they're trying. No, it's not. I mean, and it's just a form of coping with a traumatic ex- experience and a traumatic loss. I mean, the first step in dealing with grief is is denial, and that's what that's kind of the stage that the Democrats and the mainstream media is in right now. But yeah, if you look that's nationwide, right. the the parents using private school choice programs and charter schools nationwide, they're disproportionately non-white students and disproportionately students from lower income families relative to the public schools. And look. Um, if they really want to bring in the race angle here, the, 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 the biggest form or the most compelling form of systemic racism in America, if there is one, is the government-run school system. There's huge inequities in public schools that have residential assignment that's linked to the 1930s housing housing regulations. So, I mean, if they want to talk about the problems, maybe they should look at their own school system. That yeah, you're like, hey, so let's, let's have that debate. If you want to go there, let's do it. A couple more things for you, Corey DeAngelis. Number one, before we move on from Randy Weingarten, who sort of just became, in my mind, public enemy number one on the issue of education, I saw, and I'm uh, I'm quite certain you've seen as well, that CNN focus group with mothers in Northern Virginia, one of whom said Terry McAuliffe bringing Randy Weingarten 
in for his campaign at his final rally was sort of like the final nail in the coffin for her. It felt like the Democrats and, and the nominee there were just like sticking a finger right in her eye by flaunting Randy Weingarten at that rally and you know didn't didn't serve him very well. I did see just recently some uh, direct messages or text messages from Randy Weingarten seeming to try to deflect some of the blame on school closures or other unpopular policies onto local chapters of teachers unions, sort of like trying to absolve herself of a role here, which I think is ridiculous. It's completely rewriting history given everything that she did on this front, but also specifically name-checking you and sort of expressing frustration at the extent to which you have been successful in challenging her and holding her accountable at every turn. I wonder uh, how you felt about that. Was it at all gratifying to get a sense that you know someone who is sort of the embodiment of the opposite of what you're trying to do, uh, you have sort of gotten under her skin a little bit? Yeah, I'm glad she sees all of my tweets that I flutter, flutter with every day. I mean, look, I, <laughs> you, you are you a reply guy. Checker on things that, that that she's yeah. I mean, but you know, look, it's very it's working out. She's paying attention, and she uh, told the person in the direct message, "quote Just look at Corey DeAngelis' Twitter. She should have put DeAngelis's with with the apostrophe, but." Just look at Corey DeAngelo's Twitter. That, that's a great bit of advice. I, I, I would encourage more people to, to follow Corey DeAngelis on Twitter at DeAngelo's Corey if you if you like. But look, um, it's just crazy that she's trying to point the finger at the other unions. And if and for for listeners, if you don't know, the NEA is the other major uh, teachers right. unions, the, the National Education Association. So there, there's multiple le- levels of kind of and layers of. Of ridiculousness with that message, just deflecting blame. But then also, there's also a war that seems to be brewing between the AFT and the NEA. And, and I, I say, let them go to war with each other. If you want to blame each other, that should be public information. And maybe the, the unions will can, can take on each other instead of taking on parents going forward. Last subject here, Corey. Uh, you've been following these state school board associations that have been distancing themselves, if not divorcing themselves, from the National Association based on this whole situation, the whole kerfuffle, where the National School Board Association, apparently in cahoots with, right, in coordination with the White House, at least to some extent, they sent a letter to the DOJ requesting some federal action on allegations of violence or threats at some local school boards, and the Justice Department inserted itself into this uh, this problem that they say, I guess, rises to a national security problem. They got the FBI involved. This raised a lot of hackles. People were understandably extremely upset about this. I think this was an abuse. I think it was massive overreach. I think this is politics being played deliberately by the DOJ at the behest of the Biden administration, the White House, and their deep-pocketed cronies in the teachers' unions. And a lot of people agreed with me. Folks were really offended that this happened, that the feds got involved. And I said all along, if there's any examples of you know, fisticuffs or shoving or threats – That is unacceptable and should be dealt with at the local level by law enforcement. The feds have no business getting involved, certainly under the Patriot Act or under national security auspices. And now there's been a steady stream in the wake of this controversy of state-level members of the national umbrella organization saying this is such a problem for us that we are out of here altogether. Can you give us an update on what is happening there? 
Yeah, well, it turns out that parents don't like to be labeled or called uh, domestic terrorists, and they've been pushing back even harder. Instead of being bullied into submission, this has had the opposite of the intended effect, and parents are instead pushing back harder than ever for the right to educate their kids as they see fit. And now we have 23 states nationwide that have at least their school board associations at the state level have distanced themselves uh, in formal statements from the national organization. And seven, as of yesterday, the latest one being South Carolina, there's seven state school board associations have cut ties and pulled funding completely from the National School Board Association. So, look, parent voices matter. And we're, this is just another example that, look, there's a new special interest group in town that happens to be parents, and they have so much more power than they previously imagined to affect real change, whether it comes to having school board associations pull their funds from anti-parent organizations like the NSBA, or when it comes to school choice policies. We're calling 2021 the year of school choice because 19 states now have expanded or enacted programs to fund students as opposed to systems. So I'm optimistic going forward. Yeah, and speaking of going forward, I hope that in retrospect, 2022 and especially 2024 will be deemed the year of school choice or the years of school choice. And I hope that this has been an issue that will continue uh, to move and influence voters and also shift thinking among a lot of people, because I think the unions have really exposed themselves here. uh, And you're standing in that breach and making sure people are paying attention and pointing directly at it, shining that spotlight. But a lot of it is their own doing. Uh, And we just appreciate the work uh, that you do on this front daily. Corey DeAngelis, the director of school choice at the Reason Foundation. You can follow him on Twitter, as I do, at DeAngelis Corey. Sir, always appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you so much. That audio that he referenced from CNN, supposedly fact-checking a Republican. We have to fact-check. The fact-checker will do it next on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. And we're back here on The Guy Benson Show. Corey DeAngelis, in our last segment, referenced this, and this is the interference that CNN attempts to run for Democrats. They tried. Didn't work so well yesterday. So this was uh, Brianna Keeler, the anchor at CNN. She had Senator Rick Scott on the show from Florida and our SC chairman. He'll be here later this week on the program uh, right here. But they were discussing Virginia and schools. Here's part of the exchange that went down on CNN Cut 11. I think what Democrats are going to continue to do is talk about Donald Trump. I think Republicans are going to continue to talk about issues. Glenn Youngkin won his race because he talked about issues. And I think that's what's going to happen. What we're going to see is, just like in, just like in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe wanted to say, oh, there was nothing about critical race theory. We know that it, we know it's true. Parents know it's been, their kids are being indoctrinated with critical race theory in Virginia, and the Democrats wanted to deny it. I mean, and so well, it's the not parents in the curriculum. showed up because they don't like being lied to. I mean, just, just to be clear, it's not, it's not in the curriculum um, in Virginia. Uh, just, oh, just to oh, be, Brian, would you like me to, here, let me just read you a few things. Just to, in 2015, while Terry McAuliffe was governor, the Virginia Department of Education promoted incorporating a critical race theory lens in education. You can still find it on the Department of Education's website, still there. In February uh, 2019, a superintendent not, memo for the Virginia the, Department of Education promoted Senator, critical race theory and not, the idea of white fragility. It's not, it's not I part of the curriculum. I looked at it yesterday. 
It's not. <laughs> to be clear, it's not. It's not. That's weak stuff from Brianna Keeler. She's got her Democrat-approved talking points. Terry McAuliffe said the same thing over and over again, and it failed him, by the way, because it wasn't true. And to his credit, Rick Scott had some receipts there, some of which we have mentioned on the show. He knew that they were going to deny this stuff, so he brought specific examples, and she got a little flustered but kept insisting that it just wasn't happening. It went on here in Cut 12. I do want to ask you, just to be clear about where you are. Let's let's all agree. They were trying to indoctrinate kids. Terry McAuliffe denied it. It's still on the website. It is. This is happening. And I hope Democrats continue to say it's not happening because parents are dumb. They can see it. Your parents are dumb, you said? Aren't dumb. No, they're not. I think parents are smart. My parents didn't have much of a formal education, but they cared about what I learned. This, parents I, are smart. I just, I just want to be clear. Okay, the, Senator, the I just Virginia have to be clear. Virginia Department of Education not... promoted critical race theory, and, and Terry McAuliffe said they didn't. I hope okay, Democrats listen, keep doing that all Senator, across the country. Fine. Uh, it's not part of the curriculum. I would like to move on with you. Uh, and this is this is the technicality that they hide behind. It's not in the curriculum. You're not going to get, you know, original texts of critical race theory assigned to middle schoolers in Virginia. But the precepts of it are being cited in Virginia. And the overall concept, the wokeism, the equity, it is infecting schools. Parents know that it's true because they can see it. And CNN and their buddies in the Democratic Party can deny it till they're blue in the face and hopefully lose some elections along the way. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour is now kicking off on the Guy Benson Show. It's our second of three, the 4 p.m. hour between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. It's the Guy Benson Show every weekday. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Everything available there, including our free podcast every day on demand, no charge to you. Also, if you miss our social media presence, you do miss a lot. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Fox News alert as we get going here in this hour. An update from New York. The Dow closes down today, 112 points, finishing at 36,319. We are now joined by Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, head of research at Bustle, chief romance correspondent here at The Guy Benson Show. And now I would say the person that I know who is most pregnant because Mary Catherine Ham had her baby a few weeks ago. And Jesse, am I correct that you're what, like a month out now from your due date? Yeah, uh, a month and, and six days, but who's counting? <laughs> That's, are you are you finally getting because last time we talked about this on the air you were like you know what it's fine it's you know it's it's going all right some people count down every last day and they're praying for an early delivery maybe a couple weeks early uh, are you shifting your opinion on that are you becoming a little bit more eager or is it still just sort of uh going along swimmingly can both things be true? Like everything is fine, but also this blows, basically. So it's just, uh, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I was just talking to producer Christine about it. She's like, well, let's talk about birthing stories after you've done it, which is basically what every woman says to you. So it's going to be bad. But then apparently the euphoria is so next level that you've brought a human into the world that you forget that you hate it. And then you go and you do it again. And some people do it again (laughs) and again and again and again. So there you go. (laughs) I want to ask you another thing because we have discussed previously on the air Uh, pregnancy cravings and uh, your hot dog cravings in particular during your pregnancy. I find that just like a fascinating thing. The other phenomenon, or at least one of them, that my female friends have mentioned when they've been pregnant is that not in every case, but in a pretty surprisingly high number of cases, at a certain point of the pregnancy, usually right before the baby is coming, something clicks in their brain and they go into nesting phase or like nesting mode where they have this overwhelming desire to get the house or the apartment or whatever completely ready for the baby like you know the crib totally built every last thing exactly right where you know one day they wake up and it's sort of fine we can wait manana and then the next day they wake up they're like this must be done now have you reached that phase and if not is it something that you anticipate or maybe not Oh, I, w- I was going to say, it's like, are you, did you somehow tap my apartment? Because I have been a lunatic the last 48 hours, like screaming at my husband, like, you're supposed to sell this, get this out the door. I just ordered, like, all of the kind of Amazon products that she'll, you know what I mean? Like, yep. butt cream. And, like, I'm like, well, what if she she comes tomorrow and she's going to poop? And we won't know what to do. And he's like, if she comes tomorrow, it's the least of our problems are like if she has a rashy butt for a second, you know. So, yes, we're in uh, full crisis mode over here. And it does just click in at a certain point because I've been very lax about the whole thing, like especially because we don't have the dedicated space set up yet. It's my husband's office right now. So he has like a November 15th. We decided a, a month early was the right amount of time for him for it to be set up for her. And he's like, you're going early. Like, you know, I have six days. And I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah. it's over. Yeah, get yeah. out of there. You're hardwired. Yeah. And yeah. just just for the audience, this we were not like texting before the segment. I had no idea that this was true. Uh, I just asked the question out of curiosity, and there you go, right? This is apparently a very real thing, and the moment has arrived for Jesse Tarloff. Uh, and I might have to ask you, I will ask you off the air, Jesse, feel free to shoot me a text if you have a registry, because if there's anything we can do to help with butt cream or other, any other exciting uh, products related to baby, uh, we'd love to help. <laughs> I appreciate that. And um, it will will definitely be things other than butt cream because she has all the butt cream that New York City has to offer arriving tomorrow, okay. Amazon Prime. So. <laughs> okay, well, I'm I'm very glad and relieved to hear it. Jesse, let's talk politics a little bit. Before we get to the infrastructure bill, looking ahead to Build Back Better or whatever they're going to call the reconciliation project here, let's rewind further to Tuesday and to Wednesday. Virginia, New Jersey, local races, Long Island, Pennsylvania, school board races, Colorado, elsewhere. Not a great night, I think it's fair to say, uh, for your party, the Democrats. Uh, How worried are you about 2021 being potentially a harbinger for 2022, or is a year a long time and you're kind of copacetic? 
Definitely worried. I mean, I started worrying on election night 2020. I mean, obviously, running the White House was a huge relief, but we, we lost 11 seats in the House. I think it was 11 or 13. Yeah, double digits for sure. Yep. Right. And um, a number of them were filled by uh, minority candidates on the Republican side, which is usually not how it goes. Right. And when you think about how much of the conversation come election time, especially from the Democratic side, centers on issues of race and representation, you know, it's a lot harder to scream like, you know, you're a big racist in the face of an Asian immigrant, right, who built her own business. <laughs> and has, like, right, yeah, the right. They're, they're trying with the lieutenant governor in Virginia now, and it's just, a you know, preposterous, literally on its face. It's not great. And I did appreciate that uh, Winston Sears said it's like, I've been black all my life. But that's not what this is about, you know, to at least have a moment of levity about it. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, as you increasingly see that elections are decided on income and class lines, right, versus race lines, that there has to be a reconfiguration of how we talk about all of these issues. Um, so I am nervous. I mean, it, it turned out that the margin in New Jersey for the governor's race was bigger than we thought right now. It's bigger than Virginia. But controls of legislatures is really how things get done, right? Like that, that's where a majority of the policymaking comes from. Um, so I'm definitely. And the swing, nice. the swing from Biden's margin to Murphy's margin was, you know, 13 points. So slightly larger than the swing from Biden's margin to Yunkin's margin in Virginia, although awfully similar, right? 12 or 13 points in both of those blue states. To me, that might be the single biggest and most important data point coming out of Tuesday. I think that that's right. I think that. What needs to be absorbed, and frankly, by both sides, is how much of a kitchen table issues and COVID fatigue set of elections we have coming up, right? And that's what was going on. Because in Virginia, Democrats got punished for the last year or so, right? Like the school closures more than the critical race theory stuff. So like the niche issues or the culture war issues lost out to the big picture issues. And that's how so many suburban voters came back to the Republican side. So those are the things that I'm really paying attention to. And I I don't know if it's going to be a red wave, you know, something like 40 seats plus, like what we pulled off in uh, 2018. But I don't know a lot of Democrats, even if we get Build Back Better passed on top of infrastructure, which is bipartisan and a boon for everybody, um, who don't feel like we're going to lose control. Now, the fact that someone like Sununu has just announced he's not going to run for Senate in New Hampshire, like those kinds of things are obviously helpful to Democrats, um, since I think he would have been a really formidable candidate there. But I'm not expecting a great night. Yeah, well, I'm going to address the Sununu decision actually in the very next segment. Uh, Key race in New Hampshire coming up next year for U.S. Senate. But yeah, even if it's a, to your point, a modest to smallish red wave that would be enough to probably flip the House, maybe turn the Senate. I think that to, that requires a, a slightly bigger red wave and perhaps some governorships as well, right? So even a modest red wave uh, would would change control of some things after 2022. Uh, we'll see how things look, let's say, September, October of next year. You mentioned infrastructure. The past uh, Friday night, more than a dozen Republicans on the House side – did what a lot of Republican senators did as well, crossing over to vote for that bill. 
There's a lot of anger at those Republicans. I share the anger to a certain extent as well. However, there's another piece of this that I want to get your take on as a Democrat, Jesse, which is this. What the progressives wanted in the House and Pelosi gave them for a long time was these two legislation pieces, right? So the bipartisan infrastructure and then the partisan reconciliation giant spending bill. They wanted them attached at the hip, completely linked. In fact, they wanted the bigger partisan bill to go first because they didn't trust the moderates. Now there's kind of this this deal that has a lot of loopholes in it that got the progressives on board, at least enough of them, to uh, advance this thing and pass the infrastructure bill with some Republican help. And the linkage is now over between these two pieces of legislation, especially as far as a couple senators on the Democratic side are concerned. So the progressives and their demands that held a lot of this up for weeks Uh, They backed away and there's already some pieces that they're mad. They feel like they got rolled. I just feel like the Build Back Better stuff uh, might get fairly complicated again for the Democrats because there isn't this carrot for moderates, which is the infrastructure bill still on the table. That is already a done deal. What do you make of that dynamic within your party and what do you foresee – in the weeks and probably months ahead, because there's both chambers involved here on Build Back Better, dollar amounts, what makes it in, what doesn't make it in, and sort of the the clout that the progressives have given up here. So, I mean, it's interesting because now we can't really bucket the progressives because the squad lost a member, right? Congresswoman Jayapal kind of led the way, actually, Um for the Progressive Caucus, the 96 or 91 of them who ended up voting for the bill versus AOC, Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, um, Bowman. Right, the core squad. Uh, the core, well, who we think of as the core squad, yes. And I think that the good faith actions of the progressives on the infrastructure vote will be considered by Manchin and Cinema, but not enough to do something that they don't want to do. So everyone seems to be kind of comfortable around the 1.5 to 1.7 trillion dollar mark, and I think that the added, the kind of more pragmatic attitude of we want to get something done, is winning out overall with progressives, and that they're seeing. I mean, Bernie is still talking his talk, but you can see that he wants a deal, and he doesn't feel like these are issues that we can punt on. First of all, things like climate, but also he's been around long enough to know that he might not have the numbers, even though our numbers are only at 50, but might not have 50 to do this in the second half of Biden's first term. So I'm not predicting as bumpy of a road as a lot of people fear, at least on the left, or I guess as Republicans would hope, uh, just because so much of the jockeying happened before the infrastructure vote. And it's crazy to think that, like, we've had the bipartisan infrastructure bill out of the Senate for almost three months. So this really could have been done then. And then we would have, I mean, maybe the fortunes on Tuesday night of last week would have been different if we had infrastructure, if you had the American Rescue Plan and that infrastructure plan, which are two key, okay. I said maybe. Yeah, I'm just I'm just saying I doubt it personally. In my in my opinion, I I think that's a little bit of wish casting uh, from the Democrats. But perhaps, right? Perhaps Terry McAuliffe could have pointed. Although McAuliffe was really trying to avoid talking about 
really much aside from Donald Trump in the election anyway. I'm not sure Virginia voters were focused on, you know, dysfunction on Capitol Hill, but, you know, maybe. One never knows. It is what it is. And Jesse, we will see. I tend to agree with you on the House side. Of course, all the Republican votes will be gone for BBB. That's not going to happen. But maybe the progressives have sort of had this uh, insurrection spirit broken and they're going to settle for something. I'm just not sure on the Senate side, some of the lines drawn in the sand by cinema and or mansion, uh, there are obstacles yet to overcome in the process. I hope that they are not overcome or the thing gets watered down more. But you might be right. Uh, perhaps ultimately they'll get together and do something rather than nothing as they finally took a step toward doing along with some Republicans on Friday night on the infrastructure bill. Jesse Tarloff, who is now our nester in chief at The Guy Benson Show, in addition to being chief romance correspondent, head of research at Bustle, Fox News contributor. Jesse, always enjoy it. And we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Guy. I'll talk to you later. You bet. Jessica Tarloff. And send me that registry. Seriously. It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. And I'd rather push myself 120 miles an hour delivering wins for New Hampshire uh, than to slow down, end up on Capitol Hill debating partisan politics without results. That's why I'm going to run for a fourth term. And I'd be honored if the people of New Hampshire would elect me again as their governor. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. And this was mentioned in the last segment by Jessica Tarloff, a much watched press conference in New Hampshire earlier this morning, at least much watched here in Washington, D.C. People on pins and needles about whether the governor up there, Chris Sununu, a Republican, was going to run for U.S. Senate. He was being courted heavily, recruited strongly by the national Republicans to run. Instead, he's going to seek, as he mentioned, his fourth term as governor. They have two-year terms up in the Granite State. And that's good news for the RGA, less good news for the NRSC and Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott, who are trying to win back a Republican majority in the Senate. And I will admit I'm a little bit disappointed by the decision. I know Governor Sununu a little bit. I had talked to him, actually, even a few years ago about whether he would at some point maybe run for Senate if the party was going to come knocking. And even back then, he was saying he really, really, and his family too, they don't want to be in D.C. And he doesn't want to be in Congress. He loves being governor. He's not enamored with this idea of being a senator and all the gridlock and all that stuff. It just doesn't appeal to him. And despite all the pressure, uh, he's decided to stay in New Hampshire and, and try to win again for governor there. And not run against Maggie Hassan, who's the incumbent Democrat. She's a freshman. She won by about 1,000 votes, by 0.1% of the vote in 2016 over Kelly Ayotte, who was then the incumbent Republican. That was, uh, you know, six years ago. And the polling all suggested that Sununu, if he got into the Senate race, would be the favorite to win. Right? He is popular. His numbers have come down a little bit, but he's still, you know, plus 14, plus 15 on job approval. Hassan is kind of a non-entity in the Senate up in New Hampshire. She's well-known, but not terribly well-liked. She hasn't done much as a senator. She's just kind of a rubber stamp for Chuck Schumer up there. And it looks like it very well could be a pretty Republican red-tinted year next year. Last time we had a big Republican red-tinted year, that was 2010. Kelly Ayotte won that race by 23 points in New Hampshire. Ayotte, by the way, has also said she's not going to run for her old seat back. So no rematch there. 
This is still a winnable seat, in my opinion, for the Republicans. It'll just be harder than if Sununu or Ayotte had made a different decision, Sununu in particular. So back to the drawing board for the Republicans in a winnable, crucial seat in New Hampshire. Congresswoman Nancy Mace is next here. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway point on the show today. It is the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free. We are joined again by Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Republican of South Carolina, the first congressional district down there. From Waffle House to the U.S. House, Congresswoman Mace was the first woman to graduate from the Citadel and the first Republican woman ever elected to Congress from South Carolina. She's also a single mother of two. Congresswoman, it is awesome to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, Guy, for having me on. I appreciate that very generous introduction. Of course. And I actually want to quickly mention your upcoming race. Of course, you're up next year, as is every member of the House. And I see at least one potential challenger jumped into the race. What was it just yesterday announcing uh, an attempt to unseat you? Uh, Your reaction to that announcement and just how are you planning to try to hold that seat come next year? Yeah, a lot of folks may not know I, I represent a swing district and one by one point in November. It's the the tenth fastest congressional growing congressional district in the nation, and uh, you know serving in Congress, I never thought as a high school dropout I, that I would make it right. And so serving South Carolina really is the honor of my lifetime, and no one uh, will work as hard as I have. And uh, I just I'm going to work hard like I always do, and look forward to representing the constituents that, that I serve. So. It's a tough are job, feeling, but I was built for tough guy. Yeah. Are, are you feeling confident, or is it going to be perhaps another photo finish? Uh, you know, I know I feel pretty good. I mean, I have done so much in the first 11 months. Not only is my fundraising, I'm raising it to historic levels for anyone who's held this seat, or really anyone in the House in South Carolina, and will continue to do that. But, you know, I'm passing legislation. I'm working across the aisle. I'm working on the things that I said I was going to do. I'm on three committees and uh, have my own subcommittee on oversight. I have returned between 4 and $5 million to taxpayers in the form of IRS refunds, VA benefits, Social Security. My staff and I have had over 900 meetings in the district in the first 11 months. And so we're working our tails off. And I do believe that hard work pays off. And uh, I, I don't think it'll be as close as last time, particularly when the, the leftist agenda is so broken. And it's just crisis after crisis right now. And we have solutions. And I've been a part of building some of those solutions out um, over the last year as well. And it's exciting. Now, there are some folks that you work with on the Republican and the Democratic side. You've mentioned that you've worked across the aisle, and I think in a swing district, a swing district, that's uh, something that a lot of voters value. But some of your colleagues are part of what they call the Problem Solvers Caucus, right? Tends to be a little bit more moderate folks. Some of those Republicans on Friday night decided to vote in favor of this bipartisan infrastructure bill that got a lot of Republican votes in the Senate as well. But there are conservative voters very upset with that because they feel like – and if you look at the just the math on the final vote, without all of those Republican votes, Nancy Pelosi wouldn't have had the votes to pass the infrastructure bill to then perhaps tee up this partisan scheme that the Democrats are cooking up. You voted against the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but some of those people that you sometimes work with 
went another direction. Why did you vote the way that you did? And do you believe that anger at your colleagues who made a different choice is justified here or overblown? Well, I think, you know, the temperature in American politics, we need to be more, I think, thoughtful about how we treat one another. I mean, I, I had my house spray painted this summer with Antifa markings. My car was I last year. I now carry a gun everywhere I go. And I get threats from the far right and the far left. And it's incumbent upon us as elected officials, but also it's incumbent upon every single American to sort of lower the temperature. Now, I promised when I ran for office, I, one, wouldn't vote to raise taxes, and two, wouldn't add to the deficit. And so that is a barometer. And, and I also that I would protect the Constitution. So those are the three red lines that I personally have. Now, beyond that, I am willing to work with my colleagues on legislation. And that infrastructure bill had 42 new taxes in it. And uh, I believe that 10% 10% the overall funding of the $1.2 trillion. You're only talking $40 billion that was going to, to ro- real roads and bridges, surface transportation work. And so uh, I, it was, I believe, misguided. It wasn't bipartisan. I would call it the partisan framework because I sit on the Transportation Infrastructure Committee in the House. The House is the only chamber with a transportation committee, and Republicans were shut out from uh, amending or working on this legislation. Even the ranking member of the Transportation Committee, Sam Graves, Republican out of Missouri, was uh, was locked out from, from, from amending it or working on it as well. And so it's really not bipartisan, in my opinion. Well, except, either. I mean, dozens of Republicans, when you combine the House and Senate, did vote for it. So it's more bipartisan, certainly, than some of the other things that have passed under the veneer of bipartisanship. Although getting shut out of that process and committee, I think, is another argument that buttresses your point and your case to vote against it. What comes next, of course, remains to be seen. I was just on TV uh, with Martha McCallum in the previous hour talking a little bit about what they're calling build back better or human infrastructure or soft infrastructure. They've got all these different terms that they use. It is a partisan, p- purely partisan. I mean, not a single Republican that I'm aware of is going to come anywhere near voting for that bill. And the Democrats are going to try to figure out if they can do it all on their own using reconciliation. Uh, what is your maybe top one or two concerns? What are they when it comes to the next round of this and perhaps in the ballpark of $2 trillion of new spending, or if, if you really get rid of the gimmicks and, and the fake math, it, it's going to be more than $2 trillion. There's still a few backstops here, moderates in the House, moderates in the Senate, but ultimately a lot of the moderates on the Democratic side do go along with the party. And I'm just worried that that might happen because this seems like an awfully bad bill ever, but especially right now when the economy is soft and we have all these issues, including inflation, to spend all this more money and raise taxes, it it seems like exactly the wrong thing to do. I wholeheartedly agree. And that's why the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill, they were coupled together, which is why we had not only did we have the vote on Friday on infrastructure, but coupled with that was a vote on the rule for Build Back Better uh, voting on it um, right before Thanksgiving. And so uh, we opened the door for that because that passed. So the Build Back Better plan, you know, you're hearing all the, the, the savvy talking points from the left saying, hey, we're going to tax the rich and, and uh, corporate make corporations pay their fair share. But when you dig into it, there are a heck of a lot of tax benefits for the rich. 70% of those making $200,000 or above um, are going to get a tax break. And those making half a million or more reap the biggest benefit. So my question today is AOC going to return her tax the rich dress, right? And so it is a <laughs> shell game, uh, according to Senator Manchin, and that's why he wanted the CBO score. But I believe I believe something will pass out of the House, 
And I believe it will be different when it gets to the Senate, when the Senate gets done with it, because Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kristen Sinema will not be going along with the games of the House. This is what I call the House the Wild West. But it is deeply disappointing. This is not something we can afford to do right now uh, with inflation the way it is, supply chain. I talked to someone called me yesterday. They were at a well-known coffee shop, and they had run out of coffee, right? And so we have we have big issues, and we're not addressing them. We're not addressing these issues in a thoughtful way that will dig us out of the pandemic. And this situation will only get worse if we build back better out of both chambers. Congresswoman Mace, I want to get your read on an election that we covered extremely closely. We're still talking about it a week later. I'm a Virginia voter. I was very pleased and excited to vote for the Republican ticket this year in Virginia, led by Glenn Youngkin uh, and really that whole team. It's, it was really a strong ticket. Of course, they won. I would imagine that a politician in your shoes from a purple area, you mentioned you won by one point last year, would be perhaps paying close attention to a race in a purple-blue state like Virginia. You're also, as I mentioned at the top, a mother of two. Parental rights, education, these were major touchstones in the Virginia election. I just wonder what you make of what happened up in Virginia uh, just last week and how you think that might influence not just your race next year, but the the Republican strategy for House Republicans as they try to win back the lower chamber in the midterm cycle? Well, so often, crisis after crisis this year, it's been like a gut punch, like week after week after week. And Glenn Youngkin's win in Virginia and up and down the ticket, and even we got really close in Virginia and New Jersey, but it gave me hope for the future. It gave me hope for the midterms next year that when we have the right message, but also more importantly, the right solutions, right? When we have the answers and what we're going to do for those that we represent, we will be abundantly successful next year. And, of course, you know, Biden is not helping the situation with some of the lowest approval ratings ever in his tenure right now and all the crises he's having. But as Republicans, when we come together and we talk about solutions, we don't just bash the left and say Democrats are bad. That is not a winning, that is not a winning solution. Dividing our country is not a winning solution. But coming together and saying, hey, I'm going to represent your voices, it gave me hope that we can bring back home moderate Republicans bring back home the independent voter. And uh, for me, it's inspiring. It was very inspiring to watch uh, that happen last week. And on the subject of solutions, and this is a final topic here for you, Congresswoman, we are watching prices increase almost across the board. Uh, It's really expensive to fill up your car. Uh, We'll talk a bit later. There are some reports about how it looks like it's going to cost a lot more to heat your home this winter. These are real pain points for a lot of Americans, especially working Americans. What are the solutions? Because I know the the administration sort of punching the football away to OPEC and that sort of thing. What could be done? What should be done here to alleviate some of this pain? Well, certainly um, having policies that uh, that incentivize imports of of oil and gas from other countries, particularly Russia. Biden's administration, his policies and executive orders have um, 
have hurt, I believe, the the oil industry. At the same time, the immediate Band-Aid is to push back on Build Back Better because inflation is taxation. Inflation is double what wages and earnings have been, how they've increased this year, 6% versus 3%. Wages cannot keep up with inflation right now. Build Back Better will also increase taxes. Not only uh, you know, are there loopholes for the rich and corporations, but with the high corporate tax that they'll have to have to pass Build Back Better and pay for it, we'll have the highest corporate tax rate in the world, which is going to mean more jobs will go overseas rather than be here. But also the middle class will be, will be taxed. And so um, the biggest thing we can do immediately would be not to allow Build Back Better to be signed into law. In the meantime, you know, we're not doing anything to alleviate the pressure points, I believe, enough on the supply chain. And uh, we're seeing it that's, everywhere we go. That's um, a big one. And our- I think your point there on first, do no harm. When it comes to Build Back Better, that seems like a pretty good place to start, at least. Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Republican South Carolina, always appreciate. We'll have you back soon, I hope. Nancy Mace on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, we touched on this story yesterday. Now more people are taking notice. Here's a New York Times headline from this afternoon. Where's Governor Gavin Newsom? He's in the office, according to increasingly frustrated staff members, but his critics on Twitter aren't buying it. That's the New York Times story. Here's the San Francisco Chronicle from yesterday. Gavin Newsom's wife and California Democrats bristle at questions about governor's continued absence. So he's been out of the public eye since before Halloween. So let's see, the last time he was seen in public, at least on the job, because I guess he's been at a few social events, he's been in the office, but he's been out of sight, which I think is kind of strange, since October 28th, 29th. And today is the 9th of November. So the Chronicle describes it this way. California Governor Gavin Newsom has not appeared publicly since abruptly canceling a visit to Glasgow, Scotland on October 29th for a climate change conference, stirring considerable online speculation. The governor's office originally said Newsom would not make the trip due to, quote, family obligations. And when reached for comment Monday, offered no additional details on why the governor backed out. In the time since, Newsom has held no press conferences or public appearances of any kind which is uncommon for the usually highly visible governor. In a statement provided to SFGate, which is the website, on Monday, Newsom Press Secretary Daniel Lopez said the governor worked at the Capitol last week and will resume normal appearances sometime this week. In response to the growing speculation, fueled largely, this is from their story, fueled largely by a lack of transparency on the part of Newsom's office, I think that's a key Parenthetical here. Newsom's wife tweeted over the weekend, quote, it's funny how certain folks can't handle truth. When someone cancels something, maybe they're just in the office working. Maybe they're having free time at home with their family, at their kids' sports matches, or dining out with their wife. Please stop hating and get a life. She fired that tweet off on Sunday night, then deleted it not long after. On Monday, two California Democratic state senators who are in Scotland for the climate conference, also bristled at questions regarding Newsom's absence. 
One of them said the controversy is, quote, overblown. Because Newsom received his COVID-19 booster shot in his last public appearance, some more conspiratorial-minded individuals on social media have used the governor's absence to cast doubt on the safety of boosters. Okay. The governor's office says the cancellation has nothing to do with the booster shot. What does it have to do with? They say it's family obligations. They haven't expanded on it. And even you've got San Francisco-based media organizations saying the reason that there's so much conjecture and so many people running around with theories about what's going on is because, and it's, quote, fueled by a lack of transparency on the part of Newsom's office. It's just odd for almost two weeks to have this highly visible leader Nowhere to be seen. Again, they're saying he's shown up to the office a few times. I guess he attended a very, very expensive fancy wedding out in the Bay Area, which Nancy Pelosi officiated. I saw some photos of that. Looked extremely ritzy. But he has done nothing in public. I know people are saying, could he have gotten a bad haircut? Like, what's going on here? It does seem a little strange. I said yesterday, I hope everything's okay. Because this kind of has... Mark Stanford vibes. Remember that story? What year was that? I mean, it was like a decade ago. The then governor of South Carolina just sort of disappeared for days. And the staff's like, oh, he's on the Appalachian Trail. Remember this? He's hiking the trail. And if memory serves, it turned out, in fact, he was in Argentina visiting his mistress. And that whole thing kind of spiraled. Then he was no longer governor. He ended up running for Congress. He was in Congress for a while. That was a weird story. The Appalachian Trail, that wasn't for Governor Mark Sanford. Where in the world is Governor Gavin Newsom? Again, I hope all is well. I think some of the crazier conspiracies are silly. He's clearly doing something in private and attending stuff, but nothing in public. That is odd. That is unusual. And the reason that so many people are still asking these questions, and it's not just right-wingers obsessing because they don't like Gavin Newsom, is because, as the Chronicle admits, the governor's office is not being transparent about what on earth is happening here. They say he's going to get back into the public eye in a matter of days, sometime this week, and uh, we'll see. Guy Benson Show. Final hour coming up. We've got a lot to get to on energy, some bad news on inflation, and other related issues there. Plus, the Secretary of State from Georgia will be joining us. That's all in the happy hour, and it's straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Tuesday happy hour time on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website where the podcast is always free if you can't catch the show as it airs 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com. TheLongDrink.com is the website of our sponsor this hour, the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. Citrus soda with a premium liquor kick. It is not a hard seltzer. Those are all the rage, but the long drink, I think, is just so much better in so many ways. Try it yourself. Many of you already have. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only, 
always drink responsibly. Now, if you plan on having the long drink, for example, at your Thanksgiving feast, you might want to stock up on not just the long drink, but other items as well. Wall Street Journal story today, headline, Thanksgiving dinner staples are low in stock thanks to supply chain issues. Turkeys, yams, pies in low supply, though aluminum foil to cover all of it will be easier to find. Well, that's good. You'll have a lot of aluminum foil to cover the food that you might have trouble getting or certainly will pay a lot more to get. Right, Just going to the grocery store, going to restaurants, in recent weeks, you know it. You're feeling it. I saw a graphic on one of our competitor networks where they had a Thanksgiving dinner table and then a little ticker where they went through item by item and showed the cost of those major Thanksgiving food items what the increase in cost is this year over last year. And it was significant. And of course, it all adds up. And this is due to the supply chain crunch that has hit the U.S. economy and people are feeling it. It's also due to inflation, which people are experiencing. The Associated Press has this headline today. Producer prices rise 8.6% matching September's record high. Reading from the AP story briefly, inflation at the wholesale level rose 8.6% last month from a year earlier, matching September's record annual gain and offering more evidence that inflationary pressures are not yet easing. The Labor Department reported Tuesday that its producer price index, which measures inflation before it hits consumers, rose 0.6% last month from September, pushed higher by surging gasoline prices. Excluding volatile food and energy prices, wholesale inflation was up 0.4% in October from September and 6.8% from a year ago. More than 60% of the September and October increase in overall producer prices was caused by a 1.2% increase in the price of wholesale goods as opposed to services. So this is clearly still a serious problem. People are feeling it. We saw a record in September, that jump on this metric, and then that was matched. It was equaled again in October. And I think the key line in this story was, it's more evidence that inflationary pressures are not yet easing. People are anxious about that. I know that the Democrats and the White House, they tell us, well, if we just spend trillions of more dollars at the federal level, that will ease inflation. I don't think many people believe that. They also say it will create jobs, even though some independent analyses have shown that the opposite would happen. Right? There's been tepid economic growth. They want to raise taxes, and they say, well, that will help with job growth and spur the economy. I think that they are just saying things hoping that people will believe them. But quite clearly, based on the polling and the election results last week, many people do not believe them. Then you've got the matter of heating your home and paying for gas, energy costs. Here's a New York Times story from yesterday. With consumers already dealing with the fastest price increases in decades, another unwelcome uptick is on the horizon. A widely expected increase in winter heating bills. 
After plunging during the pandemic as the global economy slowed, energy prices have roared upward. Natural gas, used to heat almost half of U.S. households, has almost doubled in price since this time last year. The price of crude oil has soared by similarly eye-popping levels. This is, again, the New York Times. Those costs are quickly passed through to consumers. And by the way, this also applies to the last metric we were talking about in the AP story. At the wholesale level, these businesses get hit, and they pass that down to consumers in the form of higher prices. I know that the White House says, oh, this is offensive, this type of thing doesn't happen, or it's bad when businesses do this, or it's a right-wing myth. They've tried to spin all that away, but economics are economics, right? Those laws of gravity, so to speak, apply. And so when the price of things go way up, that, of course, gets passed down to consumers. So any of the gains that we're seeing, for example, in wages, minimal, it's just getting swamped by the cost of goods, right? Real wages, if you will. And the Times rightly notes that these costs of higher energy prices are being passed through to consumers who had become accustomed to cheaper energy prices in recent years now find themselves with growing concerns about inflation this year. And they have a little chart here in the Times story. The one-year change in natural gas prices, plus 91%. Heating oil, plus 115%. Propane, plus 148%. So as the weather gets cold across much of the country in the winter, this will be another element of inflation that is expected by experts, widely expected to hit, and it is going to hurt. And families are going to feel that pinch in a very serious way every month when they're paying their bills. There's also pain at the pump that people have been experiencing and talking about. President Biden's energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, former Democratic governor of Michigan, was asked about all of this recently in an interview. And uh, her tone and her initial reaction, I find, rather odd. Listen to what she said here in Cut 14. What is the Granholm plan to increase oil production in America? <laughs> that is hilarious. Would that I had the magic wand on this. As you know, of course, uh, oil is a global market. It is controlled by a cartel. That cartel is called OPEC. And they made a decision yesterday that they were not going to increase beyond what they were already planning. Yeah, I'm not sure the belly laugh is exactly the right response there from the energy secretary, given what Americans are experiencing. She's not wrong that some of this is beyond any president's or administration's control. That's true. But it's interesting to see the Biden administration pressuring OPEC or attacking OPEC, saying, oh, you better produce more oil here because, you know, look at these prices when they have gone out of their way to decrease our energy production here at home. For example, canceling a pipeline. They're looking at canceling another one. So they want to increase our dependence on foreign energy again while making big policy concessions to the Green New Deal agenda here at home. Does that sound sensible or coherent to you? Perhaps not a laughing matter for many Americans. We will step aside and come right back with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. We are joined once again by Brad Raffensperger, who's the Secretary of State down in Georgia. And, Mr. Secretary, good to have you back here. Thanks for having me, Guy. Appreciate it. 
you're out with a new book, Integrity Counts. It's available now. And in this book, you talk a lot about your role as Secretary of State in recent years and some of the huge controversies involving elections. And we've been through some of this on the air with you. And I know that you took some heat from your own party and also from the opposition party in the last couple of cycles. When you were setting out to write your book, Integrity Counts, and as you are selling your book right now, what is your message to Republicans, Republican voters in particular in Georgia, who are still angry with you, who think that you did the wrong thing, that you betrayed the party in 2020? And what is your message to Democrats who love what you have to say about Trump and 2020, but then the moment that you mention Stacey Abrams and her denial of reality and her election trutherism and undermining of elections, uh, they want nothing to do with that, and all of a sudden you're just a Republican hack again. What's your response to both of those groups? I wrote Integrity Counts to set the record straight. When I took office in January 2019, immediately we had nine lawsuits from Stacey Abrams, her all of her ally groups, Fair Count, Fair Fight, and the New Georgia Project, nine lawsuits, and it was based on that myth of voter suppression. Meanwhile, we had just run a governor's race with 4 million people, record turnout. We had record registration. It was never supported by the facts. Then roll that forward, and really when you go back to that, this is when uh, Democrats started getting frustrated with me, but she really set the table with that false narrative. Then President Trump in 2020 had this narrative of voter fraud. And so in my book, I really refute everything that was alleged that happened, that they said happened in 2020. So there weren't five or 10,000 dead people that voted. There was less than five. But I do give people three data points that helps them as Republicans understand what happened. That 28,000 Republic, 28,000 voters skipped the presidential ballot. They didn't vote for anyone for president, yet they voted down ballot. And David Perdue, our former U.S. senator, got 20,000 more votes in Metro Atlanta and Athens than President Trump. And in the Republican congressional area, the Republican congressman got 33,000 more votes than President Trump. That tells the story right there. But what I do in the book is really just lay out that when you win an election or when you lose an election, you need to do so gracefully because there was never enough votes to overturn the race that we had. President Trump lost by nearly 12,000 votes. So I go through point by point and rebut every single point. I include my 10-page letter to Congress, which I don't think many of them read. And so I know that it actually probably bothers both sides because the Democrats want to talk about our side, the Republican side. And the Republican side, you know, many people you know, are, are very disappointed, like I was. And so they're looking for someone to blame shift and scapegoat. But at the end of the day, we had a fair and honest election here in Georgia. Yeah, there was an election, for example, just in Virginia and in New Jersey, as you know, last week in Virginia, which was a state that's been run by Democrats now for years. The Republicans won because they won. Right. That's a system in Virginia dominated by the Democrats. They've had years to shape it. And yet, ultimately, it was a free and fair election in Virginia. It went, in my estimation, the right way. I think it strains credulity to believe that a blue state like Virginia would have a fair, open election, whereas a Republican-controlled state would somehow have everything rigged against the Republican nominee for president, in this case, Donald Trump last year. I don't think that those two things can really coexist except in a conspiratorial world. Speaking of a conspiratorial world, in the Virginia election, Stacey Abrams came to Virginia to campaign for the Democrats, and she repeated again her allegations, basically that she should be 
governor and that she was cheated. She has still never conceded the race in 2018 that she lost. She lost by 50,000 or so votes, if memory serves. And she continues to be treated and hailed kind of as a hero and almost a martyr in the Democratic Party, even though she's been selling a bill of goods and making a lot of money doing so ever since 2018. I just wonder what you think of some of the incentives at play right now, where maybe it feels like in our politics, not admitting defeat and going the other direction actually raises your profile and gets a lot of people whipped up in terms of grievance, but also deepening their loyalty to you based on things that frankly aren't true. Well, three weeks ago in Virginia, Stacey Abrams said, just because you win doesn't mean you've won. And so, in effect, she was still denying that she had lost Georgia by 54,700 votes. And so she lost by nearly 55,000 votes in Georgia and still hasn't denied it. But what is really uh, frustrating is that Hillary Clinton and other national Democrat leaders have been parroting and, you know, playing that back for the last several years. And oh, yeah, it's been an applause house. line. It's been an applause line. And so there's not been honesty on their side. And so what I'm really saying is enough of it already. We have fair and honest elections. And what you saw in Virginia was, you know, a candidate, Glenn Youngkin, he ran a positive, unifying message that really attracted people from both sides. Because in Virginia, if you're going to win as a Republican, you have to pull people from the other side. It is truly a blue state. And he had a very unified message that parents do have a voice, should have a voice in their children's education, and many other voices. And people are dissatisfied with the direction of the country right now. Look at what happened in Afghanistan. Look what's happening in our border. And so you're looking at uh, these trillion-dollar spending bills, a trillion here, a trillion there. At some point, the American people are concerned. They, they pay their, they're paying for their gas at the pump lines. And so all that came to, to fore with a very positive, uplifting, aspirational message. So I wish the governor looked uh, well, and I wish the people of Virginia well. But here in Georgia, we had a fair and honest election. I followed the law and we followed the Constitution. And I help people explain, I think really when you understand that 28,000 Georgians skipped a presidential ballot. That really says a lot right there. Yep. And by doing what you did, I know you took uh, a lot of criticism. Some of it crossed a line into threats, which I think is disturbing. That type of thing should never happen. My last question for you, Secretary Raffensperger, is a development just in the last few weeks. I was very pleased to see the Atlanta Braves win the World Series. They got a bunch of home games at Truist Park where Major League Baseball had yanked the All-Star game, right? There's supposed to be in Atlanta. Then there was a big political controversy and MLB, I think, caved to the woke crowd, and it seemed we had Governor Kemp on the show. He said it was poetic justice that the Braves got to the World Series and were going to be hosting World Series games. They hosted three, and then, of course, they ended up prevailing in six games, beating the Houston Astros. In retrospect, based on that huge fight that happened in Georgia after the massive election fight about the bill on election integrity and election reforms, what do you think the most important takeaway is from what the state of Georgia has done post-2020, looking ahead to 2022, to ensure that people who might have had doubts about the system in Georgia no longer should have those doubts in the next election? Well, Senate Bill 202 that passed, first of all, Stacey Abrams reserved Jim Crow 2.0 several weeks before the bill was finally passed and misrepresented it. We actually increased early voting from 16 days to 17 days, statewide mandatory, three weeks plus two Saturdays. Any county that wants to have Sunday voting can have two additional Sunday voting, 19 days. That's more than New York, New Jersey, or Delaware. But also for the absentee balloting, we've moved away from signature match because people said it's subjective. Well, 
guess what? We've been sued by both the Democrat Party and the Republican Party on signature match. They said it was subjective. When I ran three years ago, I said it was subjective. And I said we needed to move the driver's license number with photo ID and birthday, day, month, year. And that's what the General Assembly just did. Interestingly enough, this is what's been used in Minnesota for years. They're using driver's license number. And Texas copied Georgia because we understand that it's an objective criteria, not a subjective criteria. So we can take that off. And that's one less thing for people to really question. And I think it will help restore voters' confidence in the absentee ballot process. We also yeah, and there was just such a huge flurry of dishonesty and lies and misinformation about what was happening in that bill signed by the governor. And, of course, unfortunately, Major League Baseball and some big corporations got caught up in those lies or were too afraid to stand up to them. So they did what they did. But the reality is still the reality. And the truth is the truth. And that is what Brad Raffensperger has relayed to us here today. His new book is Integrity Counts. He's the Secretary of State down in Georgia. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much. Good luck with the book. And we'll talk to you again. Thank you, Guy. Brad Raffensperger on The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, which continues after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. In our first hour today, we caught up with Corey DeAngelis, who's the director of school choice for the Reason Foundation, education front and center, especially in Virginia last week. We know how that turned out. We got Corey's take on that and more. Really good conversation here. And here's part of it. I want to start with your overall big picture reaction to what happened one week ago In Virginia in particular, although if there are lessons from New Jersey to be derived as well on the schools and education front, by all means, you can pepper that in there as well. But Virginia was ground zero in the education wars with an actual election and results that we can see, tangible results to break down and analyze. You worked very hard trying to influence that race, trying to hold the Democrats accountable, the teachers union accountable. You had one of the top teachers union officials in the country, Randy Weingarten, on the campaign trail last Monday for Terry McAuliffe. Didn't work out well for either of them. The Republicans swept those statewide races and took back the House of Delegates. What have you learned from those results based on your own activism, your own agenda that I think a lot of our listeners share? And what are the lessons from Virginia and possibly New Jersey that you think Republicans nationally ought to learn ahead of next year? Yeah, the way I would put it is that we're witnessing a new special interest group that has emerged, which is parents that are that just want more of a say in their kids' education. And for a long time, when it came to K-12 education, the only main special interest group that existed was the powerful teachers unions who have historically disproportionately donated to uh, Democratic political candidates. If you look at the Open Secrets website, for example, I was just looking at this earlier, every single election cycle over the past three decades, over 97 percent of the federal campaign contributions from Randy Weingarten's uh, organization, the American Federation of Teachers, went to Democrat candidates as opposed to Republican candidates, over 97 percent of the contributions. And so the, the, the Democrats are currently finding themselves in a catch-22 situation of sorts in that because they've relied so much on major contributions from, from the teacher unions, they, uh, if they take a side on parental rights and, and parental empowerment and educational freedom, 
they're essentially in a lose-lose situation. And what they've done for a while, and, and you know, on the one hand, if they come out for parental rights, they'll catch flack from the teachers' unions. If they come out against parental rights, like we saw with Terry McAuliffe, by saying, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach, and tripling down on that and having Randy Weingarten stump for him the night before the election, well, then the parents, this new special interest group, came out against Terry McAuliffe, and I think that's what Democrats are uh, have to be fearful of going forward. And Republicans, if they're smart, they'll just get the Democrat to take a stance on parental rights one way or the other because Republicans are in a win-win scenario, whereas the Democrats are in a lose-lose scenario. So this could be very politically advantageous and a, a roadmap for success for Republicans going forward. But it doesn't always have to be like this for Democrats. They can, they can, they're, they're going to have to take a side. And I would argue that parents are the better side to take going forward because parents are going to fight for the right to educate their kids as they see fit harder than anybody else is going to fight against them to take that right away from, from them. And so, so it's, it's politically advantageous for both parties at this point to take the side of parents as opposed to unions. Now, Corey, you've mentioned a few times in that answer the term or the phrase parental rights or parents' rights. When that exact phrase has appeared in mainstream media publications in the last week or two describing the fight in Virginia and elsewhere, they use sort of scare quotes around parents' rights. And it has been explicitly argued by a lot of people in the media and Democrats, you know, one and the same in many cases, that that's actually a code word or a coded term, a dog whistle for racism and white identity politics. I think that's absolute poisonous hogwash. I think it's garbage. But this is the operate. This is the space, rather, in which you operate. What's your reaction when you hear the media sort of dismiss the idea of parents' rights as sort of a a trumped up, made up culture war with a racial component where they try to make it somehow racist to talk about it? I mean, this reminds me of that tweet from a long time ago where the guy said, I'm not owned, I'm not owned. I mean, it's essentially what the mainstream media is trying to do at this point. I could just picture them kind of rocking back and forth with their eyes closed and their their hands over their ears, pretty much trying to pretend like they didn't just experience a massive defeat. And instead of looking inwards at what they – and and trying to evaluate and assess what they did wrong, they're trying to go with the easier – short-term solution, which isn't going to work out all that well for them. And my full interview with Corey DeAngelis, available online, GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast free of charge, on demand every day, seven days a week. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a new addition to the Fox News family, introduced yesterday. Producer Christine got to meet this new member of the family, In a stroke of luck earlier today, she'll talk about that, plus some sadness in her house-selling endeavor, her real estate agent giving her some pointers that producer Christine is not happy about. We'll reveal that when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. It's the home stretch on this Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in today. GuyBensonShow.com. Well, yesterday on the 5 Fox News channel, the latest addition to the Fox News family was rolled out on set by Dana Perino. Absolutely adorable. Cut 16. Well, it's time now for one more thing. I have a bit of a surprise. We're going to bring him in here. There's someone for you to meet. (gasps) No way! Yes way! We have a 
Sherwood. And that whimpering, by the way, to be clear, was, in fact, Percy and not any of the members of the five. It was not Jesse Waters, despite what some rumors have said. Now, this is the new Vishla that Dana Perino has welcomed into her home with her husband, Peter. As we all know, just a few months ago, they lost their beloved dog, Jasper, who is also from this exact breed. And I sort of wondered, Dana is such a dog lover and pours so much of her life into her dogs, I was wondering, you know, what is the grieving process timeline for getting a new dog? And I think for dog owners who lose a pet, that is different from person to person. And they made their decision to move forward and to get a new Vishla. And Percy made his national television debut just seven weeks into his young life. And they are such cute, beautiful dogs. They really are. And towards the end, I mean, Jasper was a pro. She'd take him everywhere, right? Jasper would appear on television, just often sit there, very serene, very regal, well-behaved. He would accompany her to book signings, often with Peter and just greeting everyone, just a great dog. And knowing Dana, she will have Percy in ship shape very soon. It'll be a very well-behaved, well-trained dog. So I'm very excited for Dana and Peter and just for everyone who loves them. And that dog has a great home. And given how much the Fox audience came to know about and care about Jasper, and when I heard that Jasper had died, I mean, I sent Dana a note. It just, it meant so much to her. And all the outpouring of support that she got It is just something that brings me happiness to know that now she has a lovely new puppy in her life. And then today, because this happened, as I mentioned, on the five yesterday, today, when she was, I guess, near the elevators in the building up in New York, producer Christine ran into this new celebrity and kind of freaked out. Christine, did you traumatize Percy? Did you scream? I... I hope I didn't traumatize him, but I have to say when I got on the elevator and I looked over and there's Percy, I really felt like I spotted a celebrity. I I yelled out a little bit like, oh my gosh, it's Percy. And Dana's husband was lovely and said, would you like to pet him? I said, yes, please. And so I got a, I got a couple little pets in and he was whimpering a little bit, but he was, you know, snuggled into his daddy's arms, and I think that he was about to make his second TV debut. So that was exciting. He's he, he's All already because right, he was on uh, he was on Newsroom this morning. I heard that Bill Hemmer held Percy up like Simba in The Lion King. I heard that was a thing that happened. So he did. Uh, this is a dog that many millions of people are going to get to know in the coming years, and I'm just uh, delighted for Dana and for Peter. Now, speaking of whimpering. Christine, you have been now for the last few days bemoaning and decrying some decor advice that you have gotten from your real estate agent as you prepare to try to sell your house on Eyesore Lane, the things that you love to do to your house around the holidays. 
uh, this real estate agent is saying, maybe not so much. Let's stay away from it. What has she nixed? How are you feeling about it? She does not think that we should put up any Christmas decor, anything. She was actually surprised there was such a thing as Thanksgiving decor. When I said, should I not put that up as well? She said, I didn't even know people decorated for Thanksgiving. She said, you mean like, what do you have, like a candle or something? I said, no, I have a whole box of, you know, Thanksgiving decor. She said, no, let's, uh, let's leave that in the box. Uh <laughs> You know, we're not really sure how quick this is going to go or a lot of things um, are still up in the air. So she prefers uh, she she seems like very minimalistic and she even kind of like looked at some of the actual decor that stays up all year round. And she said, let's just take some of this stuff off and, you know, just she's less is more. She says, I disagree. I think that um, what I do warms the house. Yeah, but I think it's, you should go with the uh, the professional here. I think that she knows what she's talking about. Sounds like she's doing a good job and she's really saving you from yourself because you could go overboard as you do and potentially turn off prospective buyers. She's saying, let's just uh, have none of that. So are you not going to decorate at all for Christmas? Is this killing you? What about your giant inflatables that you love so much out in the yard? Well, that was a thing. Um, you know, I'm going to if we obviously moved to an apartment, I can't bring all this with me. And I was looking forward to gifting family and friends uh, some of the decor so they could have a little piece of cookie with them. And so the first thing was Sunday, I went to dinner with uh, Judgy Joyce and I offered her the big inflatable on the front yard. You saw it last year mm. in pictures mm-hmm. and she turned me down. She said, I, I actually don't want that. Um, and she said, it, it just, it seems loud to me. And I said, no, the motor's quiet on it. She said, no, that's not what I meant. She yeah. said that No, she meant it's an eyesore. That, that's what she meant. It's an eyesore because it is. And so you had your real estate agent saying no inflatables, none of this over the top seasonal decor. Then you tried to pawn off some of this stuff to your own mother and she didn't want it. I think that this could be a teachable moment, Christine, for – Future choices, perhaps. That I some know people it's, in know, my life are ungrateful. Yeah, I'm learning this. No, I think that they are exhibiting good taste. Your mother doesn't want the eyesore stuff, and certainly the woman tasked with selling your home to the potential, you know, broadest array of hypothetical buyers. I mean, I think that the market, so to speak, is speaking on this front, and it feels like I've kind of been vindicated in my reviews. And again, my reviews are based on descriptions and a few photographs. I've never even been invited uh, to your house. And apparently I never will be. You probably will. Yeah. But I have a question. At some point soon. I mean, when you have a light up sign of a turkey that says, uh, gobble till you wobble, you tell me you're not going to put that up? I would not only not put it up, I would throw it into the garbage can. I wonder if you would actually gift me this inflatable, and then someone, I could get like Katie Pavlich to come over and and literally shoot it and watch it deflate, and then we can throw it in the garbage truck together as it goes by. That could be a, sort of a fun team-building experience if you get invited to the Christmas party. What? We could even gather everyone outside but, at the Christmas party. <laughs> How is that building for the, me up? For the destruction, <laughs> for the destruction of the blow-up material. I think that could be fun. And... um. How is that helping me? (laughs) 
Oh, because you can't have it anymore. As you said, you're moving to uh, you're moving to an apartment, and so we'd be taking it off your hands, and it would be you know a, a memory. It would certainly be a holiday memory for all of us. By the way, last thing on this at our house, you might remember last year, our Christmas lights guy just stopped responding and never showed up. Oh yes, right? I so forgot had, about remember that. Remember, we had tried to book him for all this stuff. We ended up doing as much of it as we could ourselves, but we have a pretty high roof line where we had put lights up on the roof line the previous Christmas in 2019. Looked great. We wanted to do the same thing again. And so we got in touch with this same dude. Hey, can you come? Same price or, you know, what's your price? Let us know. And he kept saying, yes, I'll do it. And then he never did. And then finally, we just said, you know, don't bother. It got way too late into December. We didn't want to spend the money for that little amount of time. And so we effectively fired him because I was I was not happy with this at all. The problem is this year, Adam has been reaching out, Googling all this stuff, trying to find anyone who can come and do this for us and perform the service. And again, we're willing to pay a reasonable amount. He's not even getting returned phone calls because I guess there's a labor shortage and all this stuff. And so I'm staring into the abyss. Do we have to maybe reach back out to the guy that we, we didn't have a big, like, blow up, you're fired thing. We just sort of parted ways. Do we come sort of groveling back to this person if he's the only person who will do it? But again, even if he says he's going to do it, would he actually show up? This is what this is the dilemma that we're facing right now, because I really want those Christmas lights up after Thanksgiving so we can turn them on by December 1st and enjoy them for the entire month. But it's proving difficult. Christine. I don't know why I'm asking you for advice, but what so, do you think? Well, my advice to you is this is why I take matters into my own hands and I have the decor ready to go. So I don't need to depend on nobody to make my Christmas festive. So you should maybe rethink your you snobbiness. You don't have to depend on anybody. What? <laughs> right. You don't have to depend on anybody. No. Not nobody. I understand. I, I can plug that blow up in and here it is. So maybe you should rethink what no, no, because the thing is that the difference is we want our house to look good and to look classy and not have a giant inflatable Santa in a bikini with a machine gun or whatever you've got. It's not what it is. Is there a Santa involved at least? Yes, there's a Santa, there's a sleigh, okay, there's yeah. three so reindeer. <laughs> it's a close. pretty big it's pretty big. Oh right, and then and then it comes you deflate it during the day and it looks like there's been a massacre of Santa and the reindeer on your front yard. And then they creepily perk back up to life when the sun goes down. Yes. No, that, that's a no. That's a no. I will keep you posted on our Christmas light situation, and you can keep us posted on your lack of Christmas lights this year per the instruction of your realtor. Oh, it's got to be killing you. It's got to be killing you. It's sort of enjoyable. We'll keep everyone posted on this. I'm sure America is on the edge of their collective seat. Guy Benson Show back here for the Wednesday edition. Tomorrow, same time, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. We will talk to you then. Have a fantastic night. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.